0: Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by a founder of a company that is now known as Zivli, Usman Haq. Welcome to the show, Usman.
1: Hi, Andrew. Nice to
0: talk with you. Uh, so Xively, uh, which is what the company is known now, it started off as Patch Uh You started the company in the mid 2000s and it was the original concept was the world's largest open Internet of Things data repository and community. Uh, eventually, you sold to LogMeIn in 2011. Uh, they rebranded the concept, uh, the company to Xively. Uh They changed the concept around a little bit and then it was reacquired again by Google in 2018 for $50 million. Um, I gotta ask i mean you started off as an architect so you were born in the states Uh, you went to school for architecture in london uh, and then for the past two decades you have been quite heavily involved in iot how did you go from architecture to tech to iot
1: well funnily enough i still consider myself to be operating in architecture you know for me Almost everything I've ever worked on has been about people's relationship to each other and to their environments, and more specifically about how they kind of make sense of their environments, their neighborhoods, their buildings, their cities, and things like that. And so my kind of involvement in what was to become IoT, the Internet of Things, is almost entirely embedded in my interest as an architect. In fact, what with the lockdown and everything, I've been going over some of my old records and papers and things like that. And I'd totally forgotten, but, you know, I did a project for my architecture degree back in 93, which was all about a a networked environment. And I found a a proposal I did for uh, internet cafes in 96, 97, which was all about connecting them up with sensors and flowers and things like that. And I'd totally forgotten I'd done this, but I think that in a sense, I was always thinking about architecture being about kind of connected environments and about the way that we can kind of inhabit our spaces, but also be simultaneously connected in some way across networks to other spaces. Um, so yeah, so in a sense, it's it, it's just an extension of, of, of everything I've always been interested in, in architecture.
0: And is that how you look at IoT? I, I guess I feel like IoT is something that is often poorly understood. Uh, can you give us your definition of what, what Internet of Things is?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is hard because it's such an amorphous concept and it's also very much a marketing phrase rather than uh, necessarily a, a specific, definable set of characteristics. Broadly speaking, I think when people are talking about the Internet of Things, they're talking about devices and sensors that are communicating with each other across the Internet. Um, and specifically this makes sense with sensors that are sort of sharing data with back-end systems or with other sensor devices or with actu- actuators and things like that. Um, interestingly enough, when I first launched PatchBay, uh, I found uh, some screenshots on archive.org the other day. Uh, we didn't even mention the Internet of Things at that point. Hmm. This is back in uh, so 2007, 2008. Um, and the name of the company through which I was creating Patchway was called Connected Environments. And so I think that the, my focus with Patchway, although it became an Internet of Things data repository, was really about the, 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 the kind of environmental links rather than the data itself or simply sensors, which I think is what IoT is largely known for these days
0: and when you were working on PatchBay, this is uh like mid 2000s that's right uh, you mentioned that internet of things is not something that the concept even is not something that was widely uh spread so in this kind of proto iot uh era what was the environment like like what were the sensors what, what was going on that was uh, i guess could be later considered as part of iot
1: well, so I'll, I'll just give you a, a sort of brief idea of, of kind of how it came about for me. I was working, as you mentioned, in in the field of architecture, I suppose you could say, working on interactive environments, and, um, and I was designing and then building these things in different parts of the world for different clients and different organizations and things. And Patchbay actually started as a tool for my own work because I realized that I wanted you know, when I did a project in Boston, I thought it'd be really interesting if that could connect to the project I was doing simultaneously in Tokyo. Um, And wouldn't it be interesting if somebody sat down on a chair over here and it triggered a light uh, over there? I mean, that was the, it was, it, it sounds kind of prosaic these days, but I was really kind of purely thinking about that. So the very first versions of what was to become Patch Bay were, Really focused on on things like furniture. They were focused on building management systems. Um, when I first released a prototype to others to start to use, because I had realized that others, in fact, others would see things I was doing and saying, "Hey, can I, you know, can I use your same system?" Um, they started using it for something totally unexpected from my perspective, which was, um, I think, one of the most popular devices that was first connected up to patch bay was uh an energy monitor um and so i think there was a lot of this focus on on connecting up um uh energy monitoring devices to be able to publish that basically to share energy data with others and um so that that came completely from the community because i hadn't even thought about that but in retrospect it kind of made make sense because i think at the time, there was a lot of discussion about smart meters and Google had a product, I think it was called Power Meter, um, which was a way of kind of graphing your energy usage, Power Meter or something like that. Um, and so that, that's probably the one thing that really sticks out, I think, in the early days. So you,
0: you give an example of how of the problem that you had yourself. Uh these I, I think you call them interactive environments that you, mm. you were working on. Uh the Boston kinda of Tokyo example. Can can you give an example of what exactly do you mean by interactive environment? Like what are what are the things that you were working on that you felt the need to connect them?
1: So I was working on projects like uh something called the Reconfigurable House. This is what was going on in Tokyo, which was basically a house full of sensors and actuators where the occupants could re-script how all of them connected to each other. Um, I, it, was, it was kind of a, a, a critique of the, of the way the smart home was being thought of ba- back then. I mean, this is sort of 15 years ago, where um, the idea of the smart home was really just a, a sleek interface that kind of leaves users a bit bamboozled about what's going on behind the scenes. Actually, now that I say that, it sounds exactly like what a smart home <laughs> is these days. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, we were trying to build a a reconfigurable house where the occupant could make all the decisions about, you know, whether this sensor uh, triggers this light or whether this temperature sensor, um, you know, Uh, changes, uh, uh, this device or, or what have you. Um, and so the kinds of projects I was working on were things like that, physical environments, but there was also this thing called second life at the time. And I, I I think it's still around, but it was basically uh, a very large, uh, uh, virtual environment where people could, uh, coexist and interact with each other. And I, and one of the projects I remember at the time that I thought would be interesting would was uh, I, I built a chair in Second Life. Actually, this was a project with, uh, with some friends. Built a chair in Second Life, and we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if, the, if sitting on the chair in Second Life triggered uh, a, a reading lamp next to a chair in physical space, and vice versa? Um, so it was, that, it was that kind of project that, that I was working on at the time. And, uh, and, and kind of how Patchbay came about, I suppose.
0: So was, was there a need, like what, what I'm trying to understand is like, what, what is the, I guess the, the value prop of, uh, what is the need of connecting different IoT sensors and devices? Like I, I could understand when you're, mm. when, a, when a given company, for example, if you're putting, when one organization is installing a bunch of different, let's say, water level sensors in a, I don't know, a river. Uh, there's a need to connect all these sensors to be able to really know where the water is and what's going on, where it's flowing and, and all these things. But yeah. what is the need to connect the sensors in, let's say, this example of uh, the water level in the river with a sensor that is uh, from another organization that's completely, at least to me, it seems like maybe not related. Let's say that measures the temperature or measures the, the level of sunlight or something like that. So what I guess the question is, what is the need? To, why is there a need to connect these different IoT sensors and devices.
1: Well, I, I think it's interesting because um on the one hand we have 15 years ago, what was the need? Uh and the on the other hand, it's what what is the need now? Mm-hmm. At the time, 15 years ago, that was a very tough uh question. And we went through thousands of different things and uh and, and, and we can talk about that uh, separately. Uh the 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 value proposition now, I suppose, in a very broad sense is that when you have these connected sensors in aggregate, they become more valuable. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not just about having a single water-level sensor, but rather when you have multiple water-level sensors, when you are combining their data perhaps with, um, let's say, uh, a rain-level sensor somewhere else that might even belong to somebody else, um, combined with uh, perhaps wind and temperature sensors by uh, a third organization, um, which can help you predict and perhaps even refine your models for prediction of the water level that you actually do have under your control. Um, that's, I think, what one of many uh, um, kind of use cases for the Internet of Things. But I think that, the, broadly speaking, it's it's this idea that... One sensor and its data, in combination with uh, many other sensors and their data, whether or not you own them, um, can be used in many different ways. And so it's the kind of many-to-many connections that are the most interesting to me, anyway, more than the one-to-one, by which I'm kind of contrasting the example you brought up of the water sensor with something like… you know, somebody being able to use uh, a nest to control their, their own thermostat, which I think is quite a 1950s model of, of kind of control and, and automation, because um, it really is just one-to-one. It's like, I control my thermostat. It controls my, my house. The many-to-many, I think, is the key thing.
0: And what what was the I guess the 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 concept behind Patchbay was it a, was a contribution mostly kind of on the infra- infrastructure side of things to be able to even allow for these devices to communicate.
1: Yeah, so I would say that that early on, that's that's what it was. In fact, for me, when I first built it for myself, it was simply uh, the the very first version was simply that I. I deployed something in Tokyo, and I thought, oh, you know what? With, with that little bit of code that I use somewhere else, I could just graph what the sensors are doing and put them into a web page, and I'll just have a really cheap and cheerful monitoring dashboard for it. And it was only when I deployed that and got that up online, which, by the way, of course, in 2005 was actually a lot more difficult than it is these days. <laughs> um, th- that was when I realized, wait a second, now I can actually connect other things up to this thing. Um, and so at first it was a purely technical infrastructure for, um, for storing and proxying data between connected devices and environments. But I think that what we were grappling with, uh, uh, and now I'm sort of moving into sort of 2007, eight, as it became patch Bay and other people started using it was, uh, was the community, which was, as I mentioned, you know, was, was instrumental in kind of pointing at things like energy in, 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 the, in the first year, um, but also instrumental in trying to define almost like the metaphor for what it was that we were trying to do. Like why, you know, almost answering the kind of questions you're, you're, you're posing, like what was the use case? I actually didn't know, to be frank. <laughs> you know, I didn't know why why people were so excited by it. I didn't know why we were getting, you know, we were almost getting, even from the the very early days, hundreds, if not thousands, um, signing up and uh, joining, uh, you know, joining the community. And I think it was around sort of two thousand nine ish that I that I realized that actually the community was so fundamental to what we were doing, and it wasn't merely a technical proposition. And that's because the, what was then starting to become more widely known as the Internet of Things was not just a technical proposition, but it was actually a proposition for a different way of thinking about the world, really. Um, one in which something I do in London can have an impact on something that's going on in Johannesburg at the click of a, a switch. Um, and what does that mean? And what do we want it to mean? And what do we want to be able to do with that that capability? And that's why it became uh, um, as much about the data repository as it was about all the people that were part of the conversations of defining what the Internet of Things actually could be.
0: You mentioned that the response that you received was uh, was positive. Uh, how, what was the go to market here? I mean, if we're if you're talking about this as an era where in the term of Internet of Things didn't even really exist or at least was not really popular, mm. uh, I would imagine there wasn't like a community of IOt people. I mean, how how did you How did you launch this thing?
1: Um, I launched it initially to friends in the kind of architecture and art and design world who were starting to look at. Um, kind of interactive systems and things like that Um, in fact they'd been using what was uh you know my my clunky clunky prototype for a while um and we all just started building projects with it and some were super arty and some were super technical um and um and that was really it there wasn't I mean, I, it sounds really naive now, but there wasn't much of a strategy for, for rolling it out. It was more, huh, this is cool. Uh, I wonder if what would happen if I did this. And, hey, let me tell somebody about that. And, um, you know, and people would start to kind of talk about it themselves at conferences or they'd kind of show, show things off to each other. Um, I think I put most of my, my kind of non-technical work if you see what I mean, um, into into developing and nurturing the community and building projects myself using it, um, than really anything else. You know, we didn't really have a, we definitely didn't have a PR budget or anything like that. Um, you know, we didn't do much kind of outbound. Uh, it was almost all incoming inquiries and uh, uh, things like that. I think
0: sometimes not having a clear strategy is a good strategy. Uh, and, you know, obviously for you guys, it has worked out well. And I think even, even if you kind of analyze of how things uh, progressed from kind of patch pay towards the acquisition, you start off by solving a personal problem that you had. And, you know, when, when, when doing that, there's a good chance that there are other people who have that problem. And then you let uh, the users kind of guide you in the direction. And eventually in 2011, you guys were acquired by, um, by LogMeIn. And that same year, uh, this was after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Uh, the technology that you've built uh, with PatchPay uh, was helped to was used to help visualize the citizen measurements of radiation throughout Japan. Uh, so that's a that's a pretty impressive feat. And that same year was the acquisition with LogMeIn. Is there a connection between these two events?
1: Actually, there there wasn't really. I don't think. Um me was that interested in in that aspect i mean you know looking back at it retrospectively i didn't i didn't realize it at the time um, but uh in actual fact, the conversation with um me had started long before that in fact, i think i I'd, I'd probably say about nine months before that so um so 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 it only it, it was just one of those things that kind of came up at the time, and it seemed like i mean you
0: at the time of, of when you guys got bought out, so 2011, you were, um, the product has been used by people for like three, four years now. And uh, the user base is growing. The uh, reviews or the, the feedback that you're getting from users is generally positive. What was the motivation behind selling? Like, why why did you want to um, sell the company? Well, Why did you accept the offer that LogMean put in front of you?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think that it was... Um it's always a complex set of uh, rationales for, for deciding to sell. Um, I think that, that one of them was uh, one of them was our need, and the second was about log me in itself. You know, if I talk about our need, I knew we were, we were growing in terms of user base, there was sort of untapped potential mm-hmm. and I knew that there was really only one way to go, which was kind of up. Um, however, we didn't really have the financial or let's be frank the kind of commercial uh firepower to be able to take it as 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 far as it could and i and I think I was very aware of that fact mm-hmm. um, that uh, that to take it to that next level i I just needed. I needed something else. We needed to sort of step into, into a different ball game, if you like. Um, there were actually several um, similar kind of conversations that we had, acquisition and very large investment rounds and things like that. And, but Log Me In really stuck out for me, and this brings me to the second reason. Um, Log Me In stuck out because I just really genuinely – kind of liked the people that I met there um, and I could see the trajectory that they had taken, which was very similar to the one that I wanted for Patch Bay, mm-hmm. which was, you know, they'd started um, Martin Anka and Michael Simon uh, with, with, with a small kind of product and they'd just kind of grown it and grown it and grown it into something really indispensable to a lot of people's lives. In other words, the, the in product. And so it was, that was very much a factor to me thinking that actually if i want someone to to kind of help steward this into the next phase that uh that that, that it would be a company like log me in
0: so you you started off in like mid early 2000s and when you got acquired by log me in even in 2011 i would imagine the uh, the iot environment was much different mm. uh, especially like in 2018 when uh I- After the acquisition of LogMeIn, PatchBay was rebranded eventually to Zively. That's right. And then uh, it was acquired by Google uh, 2018. It was a 50 million deal. And now it lives within the Google Cloud's IoT core service. So it's a very different world than it was when you first got started. Um, Where in the evolution of IoT do you think we are today? Like what's what's the current state of IoT? That's
1: a good question. Um, I think that... When IoT has truly kind of come into its own, we'll basically stop talking about IoT, if you see what I mean. It is it's it is almost still too much, in my mind, too much of a kind of a marketing buzzword. Um, you know, whatever definition you choose for IoT, connected devices really can't even describe our laptops and things like that. Um, so I still think that we're very much in the infancy of, uh, of the, of the industry. Um, and we're in the infancy because I think that we're still, even with the kind of connected products that we see, we're still kind of playing with what I, uh, what I referred to earlier as kind of 1950s models of interaction. You know, you've got your connected coffee pot that only you manage and it's it's all for you it's an individualized atomistic um, experience the true potential of iot much like the web if you like to use an analogy um, is when everything can start to connect to everything else and we're, we're nowhere near to that um, uh, you know what with walled gardens and different protocols and Um, You know, just completely different discoverability mechanisms. Even Uh, we're nowhere near uh, that that vision for IoT. So, the you know, if I want to be even more uh, (laughs) harsh, I would say we're still at the cave painting (laughs) era of the Internet of Things.
0: Yeah, and I think we're you know, it's it's, on one hand, it seems like uh, we are being infiltrated uh, slowly, and our lives and our like homes, for example, and cars uh, with iot uh quote unquote so you have mm. the but but on the other hand you have i mean you can have a nest thermostat you can have a ring camera and whatever coffee pot and they it's it's it seems very fragmented mm. i mean it's it's one is done by different companies two there's no like you mentioned uh earlier on it's the many-to-many connection i mean there's no many many to connection. it's only connecting kind of to me and i there's a lot of kind of human input i feel like that's yeah that's required so do you think um the point where a thermostat is going to be able to not necessarily maybe talk to a doorbell but at least be on the same kind of infrastructure and be connected to the same thing that's when things are going to accelerate is
1: well i think you raise a really interesting dilemma which is um for which is for me a a dilemma um which is that as much as i am kind of interested in this many-to-many world uh the idea of all these systems being parts of walled gardens and more specifically let's you know let's cut to the chase uh, effectively surveillance mechanisms uh, as a potential that that is um that is if you like the alley down which i definitely wouldn't want to see everything go um so for me, it's not just about the technical infrastructure being ready for uh, what do you say the 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 doorbell and the thermostat being on the same technical uh, infrastructure or on the same network or even using the same protocol, but more importantly, the the whole paradigm through which you, as the owner of that doorbell and that thermostat, for whatever reasons you believe are important want them to connect to each other, you know, that you are actually in control of what happens with that data and how it's used and what decisions are made with it. That kind of thing, I think we're just kind of socially and conceptually so far away from because it is still, still very much about the decisions that a technical infrastructure company makes about how and where and why any bit of uh you know any data or any specific device uh makes its capabilities available to others i think there you know there is this kind of you know almost like kind of nirvana of, of iot where anything can talk to anything else and magically be able to handshake and discover each other's capabilities and um uh and kind of interact with each other's data uh but until all of that is in some way manageable by ordinary people, rather than the owners of the infrastructure on which they're all communicating, you know, I, don't think, I just don't think we're ready to even think about the possibilities for, for, for the world.
0: And I think, you know, when we're talking about these things, um, the question that is important, it's, it's pretty much in, very closely related, is the, the topic of security and privacy. Mm. If we're talking like 10 years ago, what is really the worst that a hacker could do? I mean, to an an average Joe, uh, the worst thing that could happen, I mean, somebody could steal your pictures or something like that, or maybe some documents of your computer or log into, I don't know, some of your accounts. Uh, If we fast forward to, let's say, 10, 20 years from now, uh, and uh, sensors and computers are not only controlling your temperature in your house and making you coffee and your blinds, but also letting you. Inside of the house, locking doors, uh, controlling your uh, your safe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, then somebody that could get get hacked into that could cause a lot more damage. I mean, um,
1: that's right.
0: Even if you take this kind of a step further, and this seems a little bit crazy now, but in the future, I'm sure it won't be uh, the concept of having a bunch of sensors on your body. Like, I mean, if you have, uh, and what, what what would happen if somebody would hack into that? So, where do you, what do you think is the? I, th- I think there's kind of a fine line between being um on the topic kind of of security where do, how do you think we should be approaching security within the context of IoT to be able to um to kind of avoid these 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 problems but at the same time not kill adoption and at the same time not kill kind of the user experience aspect of of these devices
1: so so i think you're you're absolutely right and in fact it's already happening um the 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 kind of things you were describing um what was it a couple of years ago? A hospital being held to ransom, and all of its kind of connected devices in a, uh, incapable of operating because of that. Um, so, so our connected devices are definitely vulnerable um, in that sense. So, my answer to to the kind of security and privacy is um, is twofold. First of all, I think there is actually quite a lot of work going on. Um, by a variety of organizations to look at improving security, privacy uh, issues, um, you know, uh, a- anonymizing, uh, and-, and this kind of thing. And I think it's all vital work. To be perfectly frank, my my capabilities are not in that area, and so it's not something I actively work on because I think that that kind of uh, matter is in in many senses is a deeply technical uh, technical one. It, it's almost a f- a fundamental property of the network, if you see it. So what I'm kind of interested in is okay. Let's imagine. Actually, no, not not. Let's imagine. Let's let's take the the IoT networks as we see them, um, and as they will uh, start to transform themselves. And you know, assuming things are going to become more and more secure, uh privacy conscious, uh, and locked down, how can we still achieve the many-to-many aspect? And so um so actually what I'm interested in is almost the counterpoint to 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 those two things, or or, or the the third point on the triangle, which I call entitlement, mm-hmm. which is how does an owner of devices, who is security and privacy conscious, still enable a device and its data to communicate where the owner wants it to to communicate? In other words, yes, let's lock everything down um, to the extent that that is necessary, but we're still going to have to build in the capabilities for. Um, for an owner, and not just a, a network provider, if you like, or not just the, the manufacturer of the device, to decide who has access to their data under what conditions, and um, uh, and and what are they uh, allowed to do with it. Uh, and so, actually, a lot of my work more recently has been on that end of the spectrum, really thinking about how do you build in discoverability into these kind of uh, uh, systems. Um, how do you build the mechanisms through which, uh, b- both at a, at a technical level as well as um, as a user interface level, how do people kind of set set their preferences for how much or when or where or with whom do their devices communicate? Um, so, so I think it's I think it I think they all go together. if you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, and I would imagine that's a pretty difficult task because I mean, if you you mentioned like you have the layer of the uh, the manufacturer or the the company that produces these uh, these devices, uh, as well as the 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 user. Yes. And they both have to play a part. So in the on the level, I, I mean, this to me it seems like a, a very difficult thing to execute on because on the uh, company level, there is, I would say, a growing distrust. Uh, in the general um, kind of community towards big tech companies, Mm. like your Googles and and Facebook of the world, especially when it it comes to privacy. Like people are not really, or I don't want to make any kind of assumptions, but it seems like over the past couple of years, there have been an increase of distrust. People are not trusting these, people are rethinking, you know, are are they, uh, is my data really private? Uh, And the second kind of the the human layer, I think uh, a lot of people don't really take privacy that important. I mean, you look at the your your standard Wi-Fi password that people put on their routers at home. I mean, it's like mm. eight zeros or <laughs> eight ones. <laughs> so, in in a world where you know that's that's going to be a critical piece of getting of somebody potentially getting into your house, that's going to be um, there's going to be a lot of I feel like cultural shift that's going to and mentality shift that's going to happen. Yeah, that's going to need to happen and and an education component for this to change. And I, and I think even more broadly, kind of the security aspect of the, the security conversation this is something that you know we can probably talk about for for hours <laughs>
1: yeah
0: uh, of how how would how important would security be in a world where uh, computers and devices and sensors are now are controlling more and more aspects of our lives and i think if you look at the, the history of the world humans have been in war with each other for the longest time. And for like, if you take 100 or 200 years ago, war, the country that had the biggest nukes or the biggest tanks or whatever was the one that had the most power. And I think going forward, if we live in a world where computers are controlling more aspects of our life, especially the kind of the critical infrastructure, like you mentioned, the the hospital example, then it's not going to be the country with the biggest nukes. It's going to be the country with the smartest engineers or the people that are going to be able to to hack into other countries. Um, What do you think about the, I know a couple of weeks ago Apple and Google they released kind of a uh uh they they're working on a a partnership of uh, COVID tracing infrastructure and then, which which is then gonna be used by the apps. And for the record now we're in the middle of May so we don't have any sort of government released apps yet, but I think Apple and Google are, are close to them. Releasing something to to be able to allow these apps to uh, to track this. What what do you what do you think about this kind of approach to COVID? And do you have any sort of opinion kind of about the the approach that Apple and Google is taking?
1: Yeah. So I think that you know just to kind of connect it also just to the IoT conversation a bit. um, So in parallel with what I was describing as entitlement, which is as I was trying to describe it, more of a kind of a technical infrastructure for for devices, data to be made available in a, a kind of a prescribed way uh, externally. I think there's a whole separate um, uh, need, if you like, for just government governance structures around our data in general. And so the question of how we as individuals own and manage and control what happens to our data generally, not just our i o t devices and um and in a sense the 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 contact tracing apps you're describing is a blurred boundary between between those two categories uh you know I think that it all comes down to our to what extent do we as individuals um uh have our governance over that that data and and what happens with it and as you know, I think that one of the one of the things I've found, because in effect, I've kind of devoted 25 years of my life really to trying to build, design, and build participatory systems. Um, in other words, things that 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 many others are part of and become part of, and actually, in 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 the best sense, start to take over. One of, the, one of the fundamentals to building a participatory system is you need to be able to account for those who want to opt out of it. In other words, you need to be able to think about what happens to, be, to people who don't want to be part of it rather than just focusing on people that want to be part of it. And That's almost the, the, the key to success. In other words, when you're thinking through something like the contact tracing app, how do you account for people who don't want to use the, can- the, the contact tracing app? How do you account for people who want to be part of it, but don't want to share their data? How do you, you know, how do you build it, but account for somebody who decides to leave the system, mm-hmm. you know, delete their data and, and where and how might it fall if you don't account for those, those kinds of use cases? Um, and I haven't seen a whole lot of that, I, to be perfectly frank, I haven't dived deep into uh, I- into into how it's all being designed and deployed and everything. But I haven't seen a lot of that being discussed, um, at least at the I- 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 in the design of the systems.
0: You mentioned you spent the last 25 years uh, working on participatory systems. Uh, where are you at in your career now? What, what are you up to these days?
1: well after um, after uh, leaving log me in back in two thousand and thirteen, I launched something called Umbrellium, uh, which was basically an attempt to bring back together the the architecture and the connected environments sides of my of, of my work and work with cities and or and kind of urban organizations to do uh, urban technology projects while simultaneously also building out um, further products. And so one of our first uh, spin-outs for Umbrillium was called Thingful, uh, Thingful.net, which is basically a search engine for the Internet of Things, which effectively is, uh, is, is trying to deal with a lot of the stuff we've just been talking about. It's a search engine. You know, we build in kind of entitlements. We worked a lot on discoverability and the problems of, um, interoperability and normalizing data between lots of different systems and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so that, yeah, that, that, that's, that's kind of what keeps me up at night these days. Where can people find you? Um, <laughs> right now at home <laughs> in lockdown in London. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, otherwise I'm on, on Twitter. I'm UAH. Uh, and yeah, uh, I, I, my, my email is around, Usman
0: Pak. Awesome, awesome. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes. Usman, thanks a lot for jumping on the call.
1: Great to talk to you, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode,
0: subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This
1: podcast is brought to you by StartupSoft. To learn more, visit StartupSoft.org.